Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Rare good news from the GOP as a group of 51 Republicans in Congress introduced a bill this week called the CBDC Anti-Surveillance State Act. The act would ban a CBDC in all of its grotesque forms, direct, indirect, through a bank, or through a contractor like Ripple. The bill probably won't pass, given Democrat control of the Senate. Alas, modern Democrats have never made a surveillance state they didn't like. Still, it is a very important bill to ensure that the bipartisan uniparty does not gang up on the people once again, at least on this issue. In this case, to impose the most totalitarian government tool since the Patriot Act. The bill itself was introduced by Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota, who is the number three Republican in the House. That's important because it means it's coming from leadership. Many of the co-signers, as you'd expect, are members of the Freedom Caucus, which has consistently been on the side of the people. I mentioned this issue in a video a couple months ago, but there was a very real risk that Republicans in Congress would get tricked into supporting what amounts to a contractor-built CBDC, one that goes through banks or some contractor like Ripple, using those lobbying dollars to impose a China-style surveillance control police state on the American people. Heritage has actually been instrumental in helping members of Congress to understand the risk and to appreciate their constituents' passionate opposition before they do something stupid. If you are not familiar with the CBDC, it's built on the same technology as Bitcoin, but perverts it to replace the dollar with a government crypto token that would concentrate every last penny under their surveillance and their control. So it is push-button totalitarianism. If you want to exercise the Second Amendment, if you want to donate to a Canadian trucker, buy a gas stove or an alternative medicine, did you eat more beef than your monthly carbon allotment? Good luck. While I am pleased to see the Uniparty on a leash, we are not out of the woods by a mile. Because despite near-public or near-universal public opposition to CBDCs, they regularly poll about 80-90% to opposition around the world, and yet central banks are building them at breakneck speed, including the Federal Reserve. With 130 countries currently exploring CBDCs and several already running them, starting with China and continuing with Nigeria, where they've led to ongoing nationwide riots. The people hate them, but the state loves them because surveillance and control are their mother's milk, is how they control the voters who they allegedly serve. In the U.S., the Fed has been doing the dirty work with its CBDC pilots, and they need a leash. So what's needed next is an outright ban on CBDC pilots. That is the camel's nose under the tent. I don't want the government even exploring CBDCs for the same reason I do not want them exploring internment camps for political dissidents. But a ban will not happen until voters demand it happen, which is why I make these videos, and it is very nice to see progress in that direction. 
The 430,000 member United Auto Workers Union launched unprecedented surgical strikes against all three major automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. In a first volley, 13,000 strikers walked off the job and blocked deliveries, idling lines on models, including the popular Ford Bronco. The strike is intended to put maximum pressure to force wage demands and benefits the Wall Street Journal estimates at $136 per hour. For perspective, at a 2,000-hour work year that works out to $272,000 per year to assemble cars. The big three had actually offered 20% raises with cost of living and pension boosts, but the union saw an opportunity, so it went for the throat. In theory, of course, that 136 will be paid by American car buyers because costs get passed on. But in reality, it will probably drive a lot of those princely jobs offshore instead where workers don't make 136 an hour. Or, of course, it could drive the companies out of business or into the arms of foreign buyers, leaving cars to the Chinese. For the UAW, the background here is that after years of workers falling behind inflation in this Bidenomics miracle, workers are angry. And monopolistic unions like the UAW see their chance. In the case of auto workers, they got an extra kick by Joe Biden pouring billions of taxpayer money into subsidizing EVs, electric vehicles, that in practice can only be provided at scale by Chinese components or even just importing Chinese cars. Comically strict emissions restrictions are essentially forcing the majors to swap to money-losing EVs that, again, only China's got the capacity to build at scale. The UAW rightly feels sold down the river by Biden on behalf of his Greens. Or as Senator Josh Hawley put it, quote, auto workers deserve to have their jobs protected from Joe Biden's stupid climate mandates that are destroying the U.S. auto industry and making China rich. So what's next? The UAW strike could end fast if the big three cave, or it could drag on for months. But we can expect a lot more of this in what the media is already calling a summer of strikes. Last month saw 4.1 million lost days to strike. That is the worst in a quarter century and rising fast. Keep in mind, there's still another 14 million union workers to go, not even including government unions, which number another 7 million and growing like a cancer. All of these renegotiations will fuel inflation that is already rising again before the UAW snags their 136. As that inflation keeps grinding, we could even see a return to the nationwide strikes of the 1970s, when entire swaths of American industry was driven offshore or out of business, hollowing out entire cities and spawning the famous Rust Belt that, 50 years later, is only getting worse. And here it comes again. A word from our sponsor, an IRA is an investment vehicle that can save you a lot on taxes if used correctly. With Unchained, you can hold real Bitcoin in your IRA, and it's the only company where you hold the keys and can verify that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated or relent out. We've recently seen that futures-based ETFs dramatically underperform holding Bitcoin, so why settle for an underperforming asset? Go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. Fresh census data came out last week that led the Wall Street Journal to admit that, quote, Americans who think they're losing ground are right. Meanwhile, Nobel Keynesian Paul Krugman was being skewered for a bootlicking interview where he marveled at the miracle of Bidenomics. It's just surreally good. 
and expressing frustration that nobody believes him since grocery prices are up 17% while real incomes are down three years now. Here's Krugman struggling to contain his emotions. Uh, the striking thing, if you look at it, it's not just, you know, the economic data have been surreally good. I mean, even optimists are just stunned by how quickly and how painlessly inflation has come down. Classic. Even optimists are stunned. First up, the census, which tallies up earnings statistics every year. They reported that Americans are poorer under that optimist stunning binomics, with child poverty jumping, 38 million Americans now living in poverty, and real incomes falling since 2019. In just the past year, census found median real household income fell by $1,800, it's about 2.5%, and it's now down $3,700, almost 5%, in the last three years. Households in the fourth quintile, so that's 94 to 153,000, so a two-earner middle-class family, lost 4,600 last year and 6,700 in the last three. Earners with college degrees were the biggest losers, dropping 10000 in household income. The reason, of course, is inflation. Wages are not keeping up, with full-time workers losing between three and 4000 last year, despite low unemployment thanks to millions of Americans still out of the labor force. It's even worse for poor Americans. The bottom 10% lost 63 percent of their income last year after counting for inflation. This is because inflation always hits the poor hardest since they don't have assets for the Fed to pump. Instead, they pay for the Fed's pump at the grocery store. All while government subsidies for electric vehicles or solar panels are not going in the pockets of single mothers working the night shift. Instead, they do show up as more inflation. What's next is with inflation roaring back, real wages could get cut off at the legs just when they were starting to catch up. Meanwhile, recession indicators are turning red one by one. When that recession hits, jobs dry up, trimming wages, and making it harder, if not impossible, to make up the lost ground to inflation. If China's troubles send a flood of cheap imports, while green restrictions keep knocking out American manufacturing, even as oil prices keep rising, we would have a perfect storm for blue collars and an increasing number of middle-class families to fall even further behind. What could stop it all is slashing deficits so the Fed could ease off the rate hikes and get the productive economy back to growth, but I would not bet on that anytime soon. We got some brutal housing numbers this week, with new home construction tumbling 11% on the month. The market had expected it to be flat. Apartments plunged 26% on the month and were barely over half what they were three months ago. So that's about a 40% drop in three months. At this point, more units are being completed than started, and we've lost about a third of house building the entire industry since April of last year, meaning there is going to be a lot of -of out-of-work construction workers. The one bright spot was permits, which are an indicator of future home building. But even there, builder sentiment is awful, suggesting that number will be coming down. It may just be a matter of grabbing permits in case they plan to use them, perhaps a speculative gamble on interest rates coming back from the stratosphere. Background here is mortgages at 7.5% are knocking buyers out. It roughly doubled your mortgage bill compared to three years ago from 1200 a month 
on the median house to 2600 today. That is a 35-year low in housing affordability. Of course, higher rates mean higher qualifying incomes. So it currently takes over 104000 in annual salary to qualify for a mortgage right now. That is essentially impossible for young families. While the typical family is now spending 28.5% of their income on their mortgage payment which matches the all-time high. Meanwhile, those same sky-high rates are locking millions of people into their homes. They can't sell because they'd be trading a 3% mortgage for a 7.5% mortgage that they cannot afford. So owners are sitting on inventory with nobody new coming to buy. So what's next? Next is that rising inflation is scaring the Fed off rate cuts for the foreseeable future. In fact, we might get another hike or two before they're done, potentially bringing mortgages up over 8%. Either way, it is looking like years before mortgage rates come back down to normal levels. The freeze will not last forever. Some of those frozen buyers have to sell. Maybe they got a new job or the kids moved out and they can't afford the big house. Meanwhile, some of those first-time buyers will eventually have to bite the bullet cut the rest of their spending, and pony up so the kids can actually have a bedroom. But if 7.5 mortgages are the new normal, an entire generation of young families will be shut out of homeownership altogether, which also cuts them off from the cheap money, the cheap loans, that the Fed uses to drive inflation in the first place. So they'll be paying for the Fed's money printing at the grocery store, but they won't get the free pump on their house. So all of the pain, none of the gain. The city of Chicago, as usual, is plumbing innovative depths of clowndom with a proposal to build government grocery stores since the real grocery stores are fleeing the city due to predatory taxes, predatory mandates, and of course, predatory shoplifters who are doing the hard work of destabilizing American cities to usher in the revolution. The plan is part of Chicago mayor and unironic socialist Brandon Johnson's, quote, whole of government approach to address inequalities, which suggests everything will be free. But then, of course, everything in Chicago stores is free with a little creativity. The mayor will be partnering with the Economic Security Project, which is a nonprofit, meaning it's government funded, to take over four abandoned Walmarts. He also hinted that he'll have subsidies from Joe Biden, which means all Americans will get to join in and fund Chicago's whole-of-government approach. We could see a lot more of this, since it turns out that tolerating industrial-scale looting and shoplifting, oddly enough, leads to cities with no grocery stores. Major chains are already exiting Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, and, of course, San Francisco. Expect more Looney Tunes from the gang as they try to keep grocery stores without arresting the people burning them. It is worth noting that the Soviet Union did try this and it got widespread food shortages. It turns out free stuff means no stuff. Or as Milton Friedman put it, quote, if you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert in five years, there would be a shortage of sand. Of course, the Soviet Union shot shoplifters, so we can imagine how Soviet grocery stores that welcome shoplifters will turn out. I would think they could actually just skip building the store part of it and just leave the delivery trucks open overnight to move the inventory faster. Now, Chicago already has failing schools, failing healthcare, and of course, failing public safety. And it does all of that with a $538 million budget deficit, which is about to get bigger as Chicago's finest 
take on the food supply. The general rule of thumb in government is if you want a problem to get bigger, have the government fix it. By that rule, it's about to get a lot harder to find food in Chicago. At some point, you're down to Amazon and Uber Eats, at least until the drivers get robbed enough. So what's next? What's next is at some point in theory, voters will rebel. Alas, America's pockmark with cities where they did not. Instead, those who could flee did flee, leaving the inner cities to spiral into post-apocalyptic hellscapes. Between fortified elections and a regime media whose job is to sugarcoat, spin, and hide what is happening, the few voters with their eyes open could miss their chance to save the cities they love. The most important question right now for the economy, aside from Jerome Powell's metaphors about navigating the dark, is when the recession hits. All major schools of economics predict it is coming since all major schools know interest rates cause recessions, but it is worth breaking down why. So I'm an Austrian economist, which essentially means a non-government economist. The Austrian school got its name because the Prussian economists were all government-funded and the poor Austrians were not. It has nothing to do with Austria. It simply means economists who are not paid shills for the regime. Instead, we actually use economic theory. And 500 years of economic theory says recessions don't happen on their own. They are not a natural part of the business cycle of inflation and recession. Rather, governments cause them, sometimes by war, but in modern times, almost always by central banks. Specifically, central banks push interest rates too low, which makes money cheap. It's a gift to borrowers, which is rich people and the federal government above all. But that cheap money isn't just a handout. It actually sparks an economic boom as free credit flows to everybody, including to crappy businesses that never should have gotten loans in the first place. The 25th app selling artisanal DIY bentos, perhaps, or NFTs of Bored Apes or WeWork. You get the picture. These crappy businesses called malinvestments can grow like a weed even if they're losing billions of dollars because they just borrow more. Sadly, the boom is a tissue fire. It burns bright, but it burns short because all that activity bids up prices. You get inflation, at which point the central bank panics, it slams on the brakes and hikes interest rates since inflation triggers voters who could push Congress to end the Fed. Hiking rates chokes off new loans. It crushes household spending. So now there's less money chasing goods and inflation comes down. It takes a while since companies and households are still running through the old cheap loans, empirically about 12 to 18 months. So the cheap money made the boom and then slamming on the brakes made the bust after 12 to 18 months running on fumes, at which point the recession hits, the Fed yanks rates back down to zero, so money is cheap again, and the cycle gets to start over. Government, of course, thrives at every stage of this horror show, which is why it continues. When the money's cheap, government steers investment into politically favored industries like solar or wind, or even into government-funded nonprofits. When the crash hits, they bail out their donors and they pour fresh trillions into welfare schemes that buy future votes. The end result is a ratchet. Boom or bust, the government grows, at the cost of destroying trillions in wealth and millions of lives over and over. So what's next? What's next is we're smack in that running on fume stage, that 12 to 18 month purgatory between panic hikes and economic devastation. Unless the lockdowns themselves cleared out so much dead wood, malinvestment, that we got a clean slate, 
we are now living on borrowed time with 12 to 18 months until a recession that, if we're lucky, will only be as bad as 2008. The Green Revolution is turning the West into an economic colony of China and a rogues gallery of dictators from all over the world. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that the green energy push is forcing the US and Europe into a dependent relationship with authoritarian regimes that makes OPEC look like an amateur. This could effectively hand, especially the BRICS group of anti-dollar countries, a natural resources veto on America, indeed on the entire West. The problem is that the key ingredients in green tech are all dug out of the ground, dug out with the kind of carbon footprints that send our ruling left-wing activists into panic attacks. Cobalt, nickel, lithium, and copper are what batteries are made of, and without batteries, an electric vehicle, windmill, or solar field is a very expensive paperweight. To give a sense of the problem, Saudi Arabia accounts for 12% of global oil production, and OPEC as a whole is 38%, throw in Russia and it's close to half. Meanwhile, in nickel, just two countries, Indonesia and Russia, make up 27% of global production. For lithium, new BRICS member Argentina and Chile account for 43% of global production. For cobalt, again, two countries, Indonesia and Congo, make up 51% of global production. Downstream, where the raw materials are refined for actual use, it's even worse. China alone refines 42% of the world's copper, 65% of its lithium, 70% of the world's cobalt. China has already weaponized rare earths, and it is eager for more. Note that thanks to trillion-dollar green subsidies, demand for these critical materials is expected to soar 23-fold in the next 12 years. For a sense of perspective, it takes 15 years to stand up a copper mine in the U.S. if you can get it permitted. So how did things get so bad? Because for decades, America and Europe have chased out mining and refining, sending it overseas where those carbon footprints are out of sight and out of mind. So they can pretend it doesn't exist and brag about their clean economies and impressive footprints. Of course, refining cobalt in China or digging it up in Congo are just as dirty as doing it in the U.S. or Europe quite likely dirtier, but optics are everything when it comes to being green. The problem comes in because we are potentially handing a dozen OPECs to countries that don't particularly like us very much. China already holds a virtual materials veto over parts of the American economy, and forcing more of our industrial base and energy production into green technologies that depend on China's good graces is a recipe for becoming dependent on a country that is already actively hostile. So what's next? What's next is it gets worse. Both America and Europe are doubling down on the unicorn fart utopias, chasing out what remains of not just mining and refining, but the manufacturing that remains a stain on their virtuous carbon footprints. I did a recent video on Germany deindustrializing, and it is happening across the West, including here in America, where the United Auto Workers are currently striking specifically because green mandates are sending production to China, where it will become yet another leverage point for the dictators in Beijing. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.